Welcome to Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group, and we're here every Saturday morning at 9 Pacific to talk with you live and in radio color about the markets and the economy and to offer some insights, which I hope will provide you some good uh, basis for informed decisions. Now, yesterday, uh, the market closed the end of the month uh, with the Dow at 25,383. It was up 4.2% for the month. The S&P ended at 3044. It was up 4.5 for the month. And the NASDAQ did very well. It was at 9489, being up 6.7% for the month. Ten-year Treasury ended at 0.65%. Crude had a big jump uh, for the month. It ended at $35.35 a barrel. Tenure, excuse me, soft white wheat at $6.10 a bushel. Gold settled at $17.34 an ounce and silver at $17.86 an ounce. Now, in terms of coming attractions, uh, on Monday we'll get the manufacturing report. The private sector jobs report comes out on Wednesday, and then uh, that also will give us the service sector report. Jobless claims on Thursday and Friday, the May jobs report, which (laughs) was rather interesting the last time, showing a drop of 20 and one-half million jobs. Uh, I don't think we'll be anywhere close to that number this time. And just for some cocktail party conversation, um, I don't know if you uh, made the celebration, but uh, on May 26th uh, of 1896, 124 years ago, for those of you keeping score at home, the Dow Jones was born. And uh, here's something that kind of hurt my head. It start, When it started in 1896, it's closer to the Declaration of Independence than it is to today. Whoa. <laughs> well... So, uh, on the open Tuesday, uh, because Monday was Memorial Day, the S&P was set to meet or exceed its 200-day moving average. And what that means is the 200-day is simply the average of the closing level of the last 200 sessions for an index. Uh, In this case, they typically talk about the S&P 500. So, if the price breaks above it, it can pull more investors in and help drive the market higher. Many technical analysts, the chart folks, look at that moving average as a sign of the long-term trend, and rising above it can signal a change in long-term trend from bearish to bullish. Now, the S&P actually crossed two key milestones when it opened above 3,000 for the first time since early March. More importantly, it first broke above that 200-day moving average, which again kind of foresees a more bullish tone for the market. Tuesday, uh, well, Tuesday, yeah, we saw 90% of the stocks in the S&P above their 50-day moving average. Well, once again, that's just the, you know, where did they close for the uh, each of the last 50 days? So what you're seeing, the market is broadening out, and that's a good omen uh, when you look out a year. Uh, historically, uh, one year after we've seen similar market signals, the market's been up 14 of 15 times by double digits. So... Um, The market has, I think, discounted the virus very quickly and has actually predicted the apex of the virus. So uh, I think we're trending in the right direction. Now, strategists at Citicorp 
say the gains since the low of March 23rd are a product of investors covering short positions. Now, what does that mean in American? Well, short selling occurs when a person uh, borrows a security from a brokerage firm. Um, you don't take it anywhere. Usually you have an account at that brokerage firm. You say you want to sell short, and then you sell it on the open market without having bought it yet. And then what you do at some point in the future, if all goes well according to your plan, you buy it back for less money, and then that difference between where you sold it and where you bought it is your profit. So again, you make money when things drop. However, Short selling uh, has typically a high risk reward ratio. It can offer you big profits, but boy, oh boy, those losses can mount quickly and infinitely if you can't get out of that position, which often happens. Now, the Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, showed banks' clients were net buyers of U.S. stocks last week. Um, again, as the economy continued to uh, reopen, uh, institutional investors, the big fund folks and trust companies and those kinds of people drove the biggest inflows into U.S. stocks. They added $1.97 billion to their stock positions. Uh, however, those inflows were offset by hedge funds pulling out $920 million uh, from the stocks, while uh, individual investors took $570 million out of the stock market. Now, uh, it was an interesting study, study done that... Uh, Almost seven decades of stock returns, if you present them one year at a time, and that includes many years in which stocks fell by at least 10%, retirement savers were willing to commit only 40% of their assets to stocks. Okay. However, when they were shown stock returns from the same sample, same data in other words, measured over 30-year periods, Savers doubled their allocation to stocks because, historically, there's never been a losing 30-year period in the stock market. Now, there was an experiment designed by uh, Nobel Economics Laureates Richard Thaler and Daniel Kahneman. Those are the, they also behavioral financial folks. You know, choosing between a barely fluctuating bond fund and a much more volatile stock fund, people typically strongly preferred the bond fund when returns were shown monthly. However, when the stock fund, when returns are reported annually or even once every five years, they preferred the stock fund. Investors tend to put more than half their money in the bond fund if they view returns monthly, but if they could see returns only once a year at most, they'd keep up up to 70% in stocks. Moral of this story is don't be checking your stocks that often. It makes you do silly stuff. So some of the stocks that have uh, been doing well this past week well, ones that struggled uh, were the, a lot of the names that were benefiting from uh, lockdown, you know, Zoom, Slack, Netflix. However, uh, it, well, and Shopify and even Amazon fell a bit. These are momentum traders. These folks who are selling these things are simply following which way the market's going right at that minute. That has nothing to do with fundamentals in any way, shape, or form. Now, Thursday, uh, we had a number of stocks hit all-time highs. Dollar General, that was its highest level since 2009. Home Depot, highest level since September 81. Lowe's, <laughs> this was really nuts, highest since October 61. Tractor Supply, uh, back to its IPO in 1994. Uh, United Health, uh, back to its all-time highs since 1984. And uh, Monster Beverage, um, all-time high levels, uh, 1992. 
So the market is definitely getting stronger and trending higher. And as I said a minute ago, it looks as if it's being more broad-based, which is good for all of us. Now, typically, and again, historically, the market tends to bottom about four to five months before a recession is over. And as I said, we're looking, I think, at a short kind of recession here. But we might have the sharpest and shortest recession in history. And our base case for some time has been that we would start to stabilize in the economy this summer. And actually, it's happening a bit beforehand. Hooray for our team. Now, consumer confidence unexpectedly improved in May. U.S. economy starting to uh, restart, and that's according to the conference board. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, this is no surprise to anybody who buys groceries. Prices at supermarkets are rising at the highest rate in eight years because meat production's curtailed. Uh, the transportation chains are, well, in a technical term, messed up. Uh, but they're starting to get back in shape. There's actually more things showing up on the shelves now, which is good. Uh, they anticipate uh, that grocery prices overall will rise by an ha at higher than average 2.5% this year. Um, they were anticipating a growth of like one and a quarter. So again, thank you very much to the lockdown. West Texas Intermediate, the U.S. benchmark for crude oil. Well, it gained more than 80% this month uh, in price. That was its quote-unquote best month. However, it's still 46% below the high in January. And finally, a quick note, uh, the GDP uh, <laughs> came in with a drop of 5% for the first quarter. We're looking for a drop probably around 35% in this quarter. But again, it's really no meaningful figure because we all know this was artificially induced. Now, I want to hit one more, just briefly back on the GDP, uh, which I left with right before the break. Now, the it did shrink at a faster pace than originally estimated. Initially, they were looking at a drop of around 4%. Now, it came in at about 5% for the quarter. And as I mentioned, we're looking at about a 35% drop in this quarter. But, you know, pick a number. I don't really think it's going to matter because April is among the worst months we've seen. And while we are starting to reopen the country and the most forward-thinking states, it's still operating at very much limited capacity. Across the board, economic data is going to continue to be ugly in the months ahead because most of those data are lagging. In other words, they're just reporting things that have happened two, three, four months ago uh, as if it's new news. Uh, but please uh, just kind of tune those out. Uh, most economic reports you're going to be getting in the next few months, again, will be bad, but they're also old news, and the market has already got them cranked well into their data. So how long the standstill, including limited capacity operations last, is definitely going to play a large part in deciding just how drastic the decline in activity ultimately is and how fast or how slow uh, our recovery will be. So uh, states are opening, and it looks as if, I think, a good chance the economy will start to resume growth uh, in June, which again seems to be coincident with about historically when a recession would end. So... The trend is our friend, as I like to say. Now, in terms of the recovery, you know, the recession started in March, and it has been the deepest since the Depression. Now, that, <laughs> that sounds pretty terrible, you know, cause, but the Depression lasts in multiple years, not 20 minutes, you know. Come on. <laughs> I think that's uh, a little hyperbole there, financial media folks. 
However, it may also be the shortest. Yeah, full recovery is still some way off. We don't see the level of real GDP we had in late 2019 until probably next year sometime. And uh, the unemployment rate is going to take even longer to get back. But we're getting uh, the old green shoots of economic life, just like we had back in 2009 and 10 when the market started coming back. Rail car traffic, hotel occupancy, gas purchases, air travel, all still down from a year ago, but they've also moved off their lows. Freight car, lo- excuse me, freight car loads are up from a month ago. Hotel occupancy up 9%. If you look around, you can see there's more people driving around. Gas purchases are up 28% from a month ago. And uh, the number of airline passengers is up about fourfold over the last month. Uh, And uh, as of last Sunday, excuse me, May 17th, it was up 180% from the low. And new home sales uh, had a surprise to the upside in April. It beat expectations, uh, even the most optimistic forecast. And April was the height of lockdowns. However, you know, sales are still down 6.2% from a year ago. So housing market's still feeling some pain, though it looks as if it's beginning to stabilize. Now, a few comments on our friends from the Fed. Um, This, I think, is kind of a misnomer that folks have to deal with. The key feature of the U.S. monetary system is that the Fed cannot create money directly. They do not create money. Only banks do that. The Fed can, however, make it easier for banks to create money, and they do that by increasing the supply of bank reserves. That's money that the banks keep in order to collateralize their various deposits. So what the Fed does is they create reserves by buying securities, such things as treasury bills, notes, and bonds. And now more recently, as was announced um, on March 23rd, uh, mortgage-backed securities and some corporate bonds. So, in effect, the Fed buys securities and pays for them with the bank reserves. But these reserves are not money that can be spent anywhere. You remember back in the QE days, they were all talking about, oh, my goodness, we're going to have inflation at 2 million percent, all this money. But it's in bank reserves. It's not going anywhere. It's sitting in the banks, okay? Uh, the Fed simply exchanges reserves for notes and bonds and then changing the long-term securities effectively into short-term risk-free securities. So these reserves have become the equivalent to T-bills because they're default-free and pay a floating rate of interest. And so the banks like that, they get free money just for keeping the money in their reserves. Now, we may see some disinflation in the short term, but I don't think you're going to be seeing that long term. You're going to start seeing prices moving gradually upward again later this year. And because the reopening of the economy is definitely going to be seeing some uptick in the inflation levels. Now, uh, employment. (laughs) This is an interesting topic, I think. You know, new claims are down substantially from the 7 million folks that uh, filed in the last week of March. And the average level of initial claims for a month tends to peak two months before the economy hits bottom. So April, again, looks like it was the highest month for initial claims, which signals an economic bottom should come in June. See, there's some sort of... How would I symbiosis to all of this? The most encouraging news on the economic, excuse me, employment front since this lockdown foolishness began was that continuing claims, which represent a better unemployment 
picture dropped by nearly 4 million folks in their first decline since February. Now, why is that important? I'm so glad you asked. The economy has hit bottom when continuing claims peak or slightly before. So, in other words, the economy may have hit bottom in early May, returning to growth on a monthly basis in June and on a quarterly basis in the third quarter. What that suggests is that the labor market is in an inflection point where any new layoffs are largely being offset by hiring and workers being recalled back to their old jobs. And Amazon, oh, by the way, says they will give of the 175,000 folks they hired temporarily for this burst of activity uh, recently, they're going to keep 125,000 of them uh, on full-time or give them the option to be on full-time. Now, one last note on that, uh, not with Amazon particularly, but a number of employers are worrying they won't be able to staff up uh, because what's happening is there's a lot of, uh, well, I can't really say what I'm thinking on the radio, but people who are recalcitrant to come back from work because they're making more on unemployment than they were getting paid. Now, you know, some will say, well, gee, you got to raise the pay. Uh, If you're a business person, you know, a dollar is a dollar and it only goes so far. And so I would suggest that if you have uh, people who aren't willing to come back to work, I think that you can uh, offer their position to someone else if they turn it down. So uh, you don't have to raise your compensation levels for um, folks who, uh, shall we say, are under-motivated. Now, um, here as we get uh, close to the uh, mid-break, I want to talk to you about just the overall, I would say, economic environment, investing environment, and kind of put things in context, hopefully. So think of your lifetime investment goals as a destination. You're going somewhere. You're going from here to your destination, and we're going in a car because the economy's open and I can drive. So the plan, which is how much you have to invest for how long and what rate of return needed to get you to where you need to be, well, that's the car's body. The mix of stocks and bonds you choose, your portfolio, that's the engine. It determines how far, how fast you can go. Now, the guy who's driving this is behavior. (laughs) you got to make sure that you're headed safely in the right direction. So, that's why you need advisors to help keep you on the road driving in the right direction. You know, just kind of in retrospect, um, just... Look at what's gone on in the markets this year. It took us just 22 trading days for the S&P to fall 30%. That was the fastest decline ever from an all-time high. And some of the biggest bond exchange-traded funds, ETFs, even traded at a discount for a few days. We've, <laughs> we've gone from the Depression to the 1990s in just two months. Uh, there have been more than 25 and counting, daily moves of 3% or more for the S&P 500. That's highly unusual. And March was possibly, probably, the most volatile month ever in the stock market. See, as of the close on March 23rd, uh, the S&P had dropped 34% from peak to trough. In other words, 34% from the all-time high to the low on March 23rd. Now, the very next day, March 24th, the stocks were up 9.4%. The previous month, 
a.k.a. February, had seen daily gains of 6%, 9%, 5%, 4%, 5%. So you could excuse folks for not believing the huge one-day bounce was going to be the bottom. Guess what? That 9.4% bounce was the bottom, at least so far. And you know what I think? This has been... This is not exactly insightful, but this has been the first social media pandemic. News, narratives, conclusions of all sort traveling in real time right into our hands with absolutely no basis for fact uh, on a lot of the news, narratives, and conclusions. So, this spreads fear in a way that we've never experienced. Drastic, historically unprecedented breakdowns lockdowns in the economy happen and seem to be accepted with little question. Personally, I don't understand that part, but that's for another time. We think the world is confusing scary with dangerous. They're not the same thing. It seems many folks have accepted as fact that the virus is one of the scariest things the human race has ever dealt with. But is it the most dangerous, even close? Hold that thought. Heart disease is the leading cause of death in the U.S. Kills 650,000 people every year. That's a bunch. 54,000 a month. Approximately 200,000 have died from heart disease between February and mid-May of this year. That's extremely dangerous. But most people aren't very frightened of it. It doesn't rate much of a, a Google hit either. You know, fear is an emotion. It's risk that we perceive. So as an emotion, it's often blind to facts. You know, we've talked before that emotions always trump logic. And so here's a prime example of that. The chances of dying from a shark attack are minuscule. But the thought still crosses most folks' minds when they play in the ocean. Why else would Shark Week be a big play? Mosquitoes, by the way, are the biggest killer of people in the world. Danger is measurable in the case of sharks. The danger is low, even if the fear is sometimes high. Now, just from another bit of data, 81% from the virus in the U.S. of deaths from the virus in the U.S. are folks over 65, most with pre-existing conditions. The 55, 64-year-olds get added in. That number jumps to 93%. Folks below 55, pre-existing conditions play a significant role. Death rate currently around 0.0022 or one death per 45,000 people in that age range. So, benefits gained through this fear-based shutdown, if in fact there are really any benefits, have massively increased dangers in both the short and long term. Every day the businesses are shuttered and people remain unemployed or underemployed, the economic wounds grow more deadly. The loss of wealth is immense, and this is going to undermine the ability of nations, not just people, but nations around the world, especially the smaller ones, to deal with true dangers for decades to come. You know, we've definitely altered the course of economic growth with this emotional response. Shutting down the private sector, we're all wealth is created. All wealth is created in the private sector. It's truly dangerous. Even though many of our misguided political leaders suggest we shouldn't be scared of it. But of course, they don't understand economics anyway. Another round of stimulus isn't what we need. Moreover, we're putting huge financial burdens on future generations because we're scared of something that the data have revealed as far less dangerous than many other things in life. 
Shutdown may slow the spread of the virus. Can't stop it. Yeah, the vaccine may cure us, but in the meantime, we've entered a new era which fear trumps danger and near-term risk creates long-term problems. That's tough. Again, when emotions get involved, <laughs> like I said, logic goes out the window. It appears that many people have come to this realization as the data built. Hopefully this lockdown will go down in history as a huge mistake that we'll never repeat. Now, given that we cannot predict, the question now becomes, how shall we plan? Because the sooner you turn your thinking back to planning, strategizing for your investment, the more pitfalls you can avoid. I like to take folks back mentally to where they were before the stuff hit the fed. You know, like, what were you investing for? What were your most important financial goals at the beginning of the year? You know, answers are typically uh, worry for retirement, kids, grandkids, education, legacy, those kinds of things, or combinations. And then we ask, well, have those goals changed? And the answer is almost always, of course not. Now, we strongly agree and point out that folks date specific goals, retirement date, date first kid enters college, and so on and so forth, have all gotten five months closer and or you've moved five months further into your retirement. The, the virus didn't change any of that. It's still out there. Now, next, what did we agree at the beginning of the year? I'm talking with clients, for example. At the beginning of this year, long before, was the asset class by which the far greatest historical probability of getting you to your goals in your time remaining? Answer, patient, disciplined, well-diversified ownership of the great companies of the world, a.k.a. common stocks. Current commentary is really, how would I say, uh, irrelevant to the long-term goal-focused investor. Uh, you know, you can't minimize, we can't minimize the seriousness of the economic and financial crises which excuse me, touched off all the significant but ultimately fleeting stock price declines in the past right up until now. But what I'd like you to do is consider that in every case so far, the declines were ultimately met and passed. So in a well-diversified portfolio of quality stocks, there's historically been a critical difference between a severe but temporary price decline and a permanent loss of your capital. The former, as we've seen, is almost commonplace. But the latter has historically not happened with one exception, provided the investor held on to their positions. Now, we've had had occasion in the very recent past to observe this phenomenon up close and personal. The S&P fell from a new all-time closing high on February 19th into the bear market territory in a record 16 days. Now, in 33 days, as we've discussed before, through March 23rd, it was down 34%. <laughs> and I'm sorry, but investors flew out of stocks on a scale not seen since the panic of 08 and 09. And more amazingly, safe haven money market fund assets soared past, you ready for this, $4 trillion for the first time in history. But does it seem probable that the real value, this the enterprise value of 500 of the world's largest, most innovative, best finance best managed companies was permanently diminished by a third in those five weeks? I think not. 
I want to uh, kind of reiterate something that I said right before this last break. You know, does it seem probable that the value of 500 of the world's best companies uh, had their values diminished by a third in five weeks? You know, I think that this is <laughs> something I've never understood about uh, folks and how they respond to stock prices. You know, it's possible that stocks are like everything else in our economic lives, like when their prices become deeply discounted, the value as good companies might actually be increasing. So they might be, what's the word, on sale? You know, as you see any retail item, a car, clothing, food, whatever. You know what its usual price is. You know what the value is because you used it, you're familiar with it, whatever the case may be. And you see the price down, well, you'll either take advantage of it and buy some. You may buy more than usual simply because it's a good value. Well, the same thing happens with stocks. But for some reason, folks, <laughs> logic, once again, goes upside down because they say if it's down, it can't be good. Uh, that's not true. Now, some companies deserve to be down. Oh, yes, sir. Absolutely. However... Most, if the general market is trending lower, is simply just kind of going along for the ride. So you have to, uh, that's why you have to pay attention to the quality of your fund and individual company holdings. It's because, just because they're a stock or a fund or a bond or whatever, doesn't mean they're going to trade just like everybody else. They all have their own little nuances, I guess you could say. You know, a significant decline in the price of a well-diversified, high-quality stock portfolio is really entirely different than a permanent loss of capital because it's not only historically probable that a temporary market decline becomes an irretrievable loss of capital only if and when you sell. Moral of the story, stick with quality, don't sell. You know, people who have absolutely no idea about how the capital markets work. And I would have to include, oh, I don't know, 97.5% of all quote-unquote financial journalists and perhaps that same percentage of politicians. Well, you know, they seem quite distraught by the fact that the stock market is being resilient in the face of what appears to be catastrophic economic data. Now, I did talk briefly about this at the open, but, you know, financial journalism seems to be filled with people shrieking. Well, I guess they shriek whatever they're talking about, but in this case, that stocks are as overvalued as they've been since Coolidge was in the White House. Now, what has that got to do with anything? <laughs> Markets, by their nature, change. I mean, that's like ancient history. Two weeks ago is ancient history for the markets. Are you talking about Coolidge? Forget about it. You know that many of these same quote-unquote experts putting out this nonsense, well, we heard last from them in late March when they told us, don't buy the dip because for sure there's going to be another wave of selling along momentarily. Sounds like 2008 deja vu, doesn't it? Ordinarily, it's pretty difficult to figure out the sources and of and systems in the thinking of ignorant people, but in this case, the basis is quite clear. I think these people are possessed by the notion that the capital markets, and the stock market in particular, 
are indicators of the economy. Now, it goes without saying that they hold this view in spite of all historical reason and logic. But, like Forrest Gump said, stupid is as stupid does. You know, the capital markets in general, and the stock market in particular, are in fact leading indicators of the economy. Over the last 80 years, the stock market has bottomed an average of 107 days before the recession. Now, for the record, 107 days from March 23rd will take us right to the end of June. Whoops, there it is again. Now, I don't know. This is all coincidental, this June stuff. But it does suggest that there is some sort of underlying harmony in this recovery. Now, faced with unprecedented artificially induced economic cardiac address. <laughs> I think that's cardiac arrest, sorry. <laughs> the market wiped out a third of the S&P's price in 33 days, as, we, as we've discussed a couple times. And then, on March 23rd, here he came, Captain Marvel, a.k.a. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell. He made it known that there would be no limit, no limit to the central bank's support of the financial system. On a dime, the market stopped cratering. It quickly recovered about half what our journalism friends called its losses. Now, the only losses that we're talking about were unrealized. You'll see in these news releases and these commentaries, market lost, uh, this trader lost, whatever lost, this many hundreds of thousands, million dollars on this trade, blah, blah, blah. Well, unless the person sold, he didn't lose anything, Okay. I mean, it sounds stupid, but it's true. You don't lose until you sell. Conversely, you don't gain until you sell either. You know, it's all unrealized, they call it. Now, if you get these two very important facts, in other words, leading indicator and the discounting function out of the way, I think we can go to the point that's currently much more important than everything else put together. Stocks have somewhat stabilized because bonds which are always, always an irrational holding for the creation of wealth, have now arrived at a point where they're <laughs> utterly ridiculous. I mean, really, think about it. The 10-year U.S. Treasury note pays you just over six-tenths of 1% per year. Yet, more to the point, if you want to go big, make the big money, you can go to the 30-year Treasury bond. It yields about twice that but it's only around 1.4%. So let me remind you of some relevant facts, um, math facts, bond math as I choose to call it. The Central Bank of the U.S., a.k.a. the Federal Reserve, has a long-held, clearly stated policy of inflating the currency at 2% a year. That's not considered normal growth, usual or normal, no big deal. We've been hovering close to, slightly lower than, whatever, that for a while. But if we were to concede, excuse me, if we're to succeed now at that level, what that does is it has an effect on that 30-year Treasury bond. That 1.4% Treasury bond would have a negative real return, that is to say, after tax, and after inflation, which we've already factored in, of six-tenths of one percent a year. Whoa. For 30 years. And it gets worse. 
The interest on all treasury issues is taxed as current income. So, if you happen to be in a 30% tax bracket, just arbitrary, you'll owe annually about four-tenths of 1% in tax. So, you add in the inflation-created depreciation. This brings your negative real return to a nice round 1% per year. That's negative real return. So, if you hold your 30-year treasury to maturity, you shall have ended up the same number of dollars. In other words, at the end, they'll say, okay, I put in $50,000 into this 1.4% 30-year treasury. 30 years out, somebody gets a check with the exact same number that you put in there. Thank you very much. But because of inflation and because of tax, you shall have lost something like one-third of your purchasing power. And long-term, when it comes to retirement and living uh, for any long-term goal, education, marriage, uh, fo- uh, a property that you want to buy in the future, you got to factor in what the effect of inflation is and, is it, and how you're going to offset that to keep your purchasing power growing. So, on the other hand, though, if you're not holding your treasury to maturity, if you're just using it at one of those parking places until, quote-unquote, things settle down, there's still a pretty fair chance that interest rates and or inflation may have picked up in the meantime. So, (laughs) what happens then is that while you invest in this most riskless of debt, it's a risk-free security because they guarantee they get your money back, it will actually manage to cause you to have a capital loss. So, hope you have a great week. Hope this was helpful to you. We'll be back next Saturday at 9 Pacific. Thank you very much for listening. This is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group, and you've been listening to Money Management. Be sure and listen to Opus 111's Mike Mail every Saturday morning on 920 AM KXLY in Spokane. Stream the show on KXLY920.com or subscribe to this podcast and we'll bring the latest episode to you. Securities offered through KMS Financial Services.